Luke chapter 3. Now, Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, verse 23 says. 30 years of age is important. Uh, because in the Jewish mind, the age of 30 was the age where a male would be considered mature enough to serve as a priest. Actually, the number changed from 30 in Numbers 4 to 25 in Numbers 8, and then down to 20 in, under King David in First Chronicles chapter 23. And so the priestly threshold for maturity was 20, and on the other end of the spectrum, it was, they said it was 30. Uh, Sorry, 20 to 50. In other words, the priests were somewhere between 20 and 50. Now, you have to remember that these guys are out tending sheep, and there's a lot of manual labor involved with all the sacrifices and lifting stuff. And so there's a lot of intense stuff going on there. And so after 50, they weren't allowed to do the manual labor by themselves, but it says that they could help out. They could assist the younger priests. There's a lot there. And obviously, you can see the types and God's design for uh, duplication. And replication. But I find it very interesting as we've been looking for candidates, we've been looking at candidates for our youth director position. Some something that the elders and I have desired is a certain level of spiritual maturity. That's what we're praying for, is, is someone who's spiritually mature. Um, I'm about to turn 40, 41 in a couple of weeks. And in a few weeks, uh, uh, you know, I'm gonna be kind of looking at my life a little differently than I was, say, at 40. And, and as I look back over my life, I realized at 21, um, I didn't have as much incredible wisdom as I do now. And so, um, yes, the modesty. I've, I've become much more humble, believe it or not. <laughs> you can see it exude. But I was 21 when I became the worship leader at uh, Calvary Chapel of Escondido. I remember hearing at the time that I was spiritually mature for my age. That's something people were telling me. So I'm recalling to you, spirit, you man, you're you're kind of mature for your age, and that I had some insight and wisdom. And I haven't heard that in about 15 years, but I was gifted musically, and and, and it was evident that God had blessed me to serve in that capacity at a young age. God had blessed the ministry. But uh, let me tell you something that I would not have been able to overcome the temptations and the pressures and the immaturity if I did not have some really mature men around me leading me and guiding me, speaking into my life, correcting me, spending time with me, working on my car, um, helping me navigate through family issues and personal uh, frustrations. And so it was just, it was a real blessing to have that, um, that oversight in my life. Um, you know, young men face a lot of temptation in ministry. You hear it all the time, even older men, just pastors cheating on their wives and, and, uh, just, you know, youth pastors, uh, sleeping and, and getting engaged with their youth members. And just, just, there's just horrible rampant sin everywhere that is just, just right there for the human heart to, uh, to go and grab. And if there isn't a certain level of check and maturity in someone's life, if there isn't that, those, that, that brokenness that's caused by the Holy Spirit, the work of repentance in someone's heart, they're just going to go for that stuff and, and then live this double life. And I think of uh, the, the story of Joseph. Remember, Joseph was 17. He was really gifted, but he was very prideful. Remember that story? He's like, hey, 
Brothers, I got this great story to tell you. I had this dream. You're all going to bow down to me. What do you think about that? 17 years old. He's like, boom. He's gifted. It was true. But how he communicated it needed a little work. Amen? And then he goes and does it a couple days later to his mom and dad. And they get upset. And so there's a lot of family dynamics going on there. I don't want to go into it right now. But basically four different moms for all the kids. And he gets thrown in the pit because he was the favorite, right? Big story. Won't go into it. Want to, but I won't. <sighs> gets thrown into a pit. And we find that he gets sold as a slave into Egypt, and he finds himself in Potiphar's house. And he's a servant in Potiphar's house. Well, Potiphar has a wife who lusts after this young stud Joseph, correct? And it wasn't just a one-time situation. It was over and over and over and over. And it came to the place where she actually forced herself upon him. He had to get up and run. She grabbed his robe, and he ran out the door naked. Now, dad comes home. He's in charge of everything. Who's he going to believe? And so he gets thrown in prison and where he interprets other dreams. But it isn't until he is 30 years old when he interprets, when the king remembers him, brings him, brings him before him. And finally, the interpretation of the dream, see, he was still gifted. He was still talented, but when he was 30 years old, what happened? They brought him before the Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said, hey, I've got all these great things, that, I mean, these dreams that are really bugging me, and I, I've heard that you're wonderful at doing this. And finally, Joseph says, man, I can't do anything, but God will give it to me. You see the change in the heart? The gifting turned away from pride, and it turned towards God. You see, he's the one. Now, obviously, and from that day, he went from prison to the palace. Amen? And so I think it's important, while 30 years old isn't always the, um, isn't always the threshold that you can be 30 and immature is crazy. How many of you know people who are 60 and 70 and act like they're two? Amen? Come on now. Don't raise hands. But age doesn't necessarily translate into maturity, but there's a sense in that someone around the age of 30 has had a chance to mature and gain wisdom. Our, our founders kind of took that into consideration by putting limits on what age someone could, could be president and, 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 and representatives and things like that. But so we're asking the Lord for someone with some spiritual maturity, whether they be 20 or 50, you know, that they have the heart of the Lord, and then also we are able to come alongside them and help them in whatever capacity they're in, that we would be a team, so to speak, looking out for one another. But Luke is telling us that Jesus was the mature age of 30 when he began to step out into public light to fulfill the Father's plan according to the law. I think that's very important. Now, it's important to know that Jesus was not fulfilling priestly duties. He wasn't of the line of Levites. You could only be, remember there are 12 tribes and one of those tribes was assigned to take care of the Levitical things. Jesus was not going to be a priest. He, although he was a priest according to a different order, Melchizedek, you can go read about that in Hebrews. We'll get into that this morning. I really want to, but I won't again. But Jesus began his ministry at the age of 30 as a rabbi, as a teacher. And so it says in verse 23, Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. Now, we know that 
Jesus was born of a virgin Mary. His mother uh, was Mary, and his father was not Joseph, but it was the father. And Luke gives us the lineage of Jesus that went through Joseph, I think, all the way to Adam. Some say it's Mary. It's really interesting. As you read church history, there's a church historian named uh, Eusebius that was around in the 300s. And he says that, he says it one way. He says, well, it's possibly that the lineage, this lineage is, is Mary's or, or, and the other one in, in Mark and Matthew's is Joseph's. And one is telling like a, a royal line and one is telling a, a legal line because Jesus, how many of you have, have you ever experienced adoption before? You have the right of your father. Whatever is theirs is yours by right. Therefore, you are part of that lineage, so to speak. So it could be that. But regardless, it goes back and forth. But the point of the whole thing is that Jesus Christ is definitely connected to Adam. And Jesus Christ is definitely connected to David. Jesus Christ is a man, and yet he also is part of the priestly tribe, which is the line of Judah. And it really all culminates in, in, um, in Revelation chapter 5 where it says this, let me read a little bit for you. And I saw at the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, and written inside on the back, sealed with seven seals. Many believe that this is something called a title deed, meaning um, it showed ownership. It was like the deed to your car. The only thing was the deed to the earth, which Adam had forfeited to Satan when he had sinned. But it says, and I saw at the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside on the, and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And then I, then I saw a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. All disqualified, all unworthy, all can't do it. And so I wept much. Because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Jesus, the king, Jesus, the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, alone was worthy. You see, we're all connected to Adam. We've all blown it. Jesus Christ, connected to Adam, yet without sin. He's the one who can redeem. Uh, There's a lot there. Again, I won't go into it too much, but it's pointing to Jesus. The point of all this is that Luke is letting the guy he's writing to know that Jesus meets all the requirements to to redeem mankind. All the requirements to redeem mankind. That he is qualified, and he is the Messiah, the one that would come. And so verse 23 through 28 gives us all that lineage. Are you ready for me to butcher some scripture? (laughs) Verse by verse gets you. And so Jesus, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janna, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math. Why would you name your kid Math? The son of <laughs> Mattathiah, the son of Simei, the son of Joseph, the son of Judah, the son of jo- uh, Jonas, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of 
Melki, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Jose. Now, there you go. J-O-S-E. The son of... uh, Come on, you're supposed to laugh there. Oh, come on. Josie. I don't know what his name is. Josie. Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of uh, Mahat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonah, the son of uh, Eliakim, the son of uh, Maliah, the son of uh, Menon, the son of Mattathath, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salom, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, uh, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sirach, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. I think that's why in the New Testament they just say Bar. <laughs> you don't have to say son of Bar Jonah. That means son of, right? So they just got tired of it too. Um, but so if you're looking for biblical baby names, you've come to the right place, you know. <laughs> Who wouldn't want to name their kids Zerubbabel? <laughs> and really, this is an Old Testament survey. That's an Old Testament survey. The reason the Old Testament was written because it was all leading up and pointing to the Messiah. The one who redeemed mankind from sin and from death. And so when you read things like this in the Bible, you might go, ugh, <laughs> why is this in there? Who cares about this? Let's How many of you done that? You start reading that and all of a sudden it's like, this is what you do to go to sleep. <laughs> yeah, it's like doctors, if they only knew. <laughs> Give them something spiritual to do, you'll go to sleep. Yeah, but who cares? You know, and you skip over it. Anybody ever done that? Well, let me tell you that Christ is the purpose. He's the reason for every name and every single story. And and if you don't believe me, I'm going to show you something that's going to blow your mind. I've shown it to you before. How many of you were here through Genesis? A few of you, a lot of new people. But proof that God is working in real time in the lives of people to bring about His plan and to redeem the world through His Son. God works through real time and real people, real circumstances. And let me show you something cool. I want to focus on the last few verses of this chapter. Specifically, the last ten names, which start in the middle of verse 36. We see Noah in the middle of verse 36, and then Lamech. Methuselah, Enoch, uh, and then it keeps on going, right? Now, let's reverse the order. Let's reverse the order. Because the genealogy is working backwards from Jesus, Jesus to Adam, right? It's just as if I'm saying, hey, here's Matt, and here's my, my dad, and here's my dad's dad, and it's going that way. Well, let's work it the other way. Let's start at the beginning work backwards. And so Adam would be first, and then Seth, and then Seth had Enosh, and so on. If you flip over to Genesis chapter 5, everybody flip left to Genesis chapter 5. We'll 
What does Genesis chapter 5, verse 1 say in... Does someone have the New King James Version? Christine? Go for it. What does it say? Chapter 5, verse 1, Genesis. This is the book of the what? Genealogy of Adam. Very something interesting about the Bible is we want to put chapters and numbers on things, but the author already had his way of, of organizing things. It was according to genealogy. That's very interesting. And so in the Jewish mind, when you come to Luke chapter 3, you're connecting. You already know. Oh, this, these are how all the pieces fit together. And that was Luke's part of Luke's purpose in that. But in Luke chapter 5, starting over there in, uh, well, just if you just kind of read through there, you'll see a pattern. So you see Adam. He had Seth, and Seth had Enosh, and so on. And do you know, guys, that even though these guys didn't know it, God was declaring the gospel through their names. It's absolutely fascinating. Go ahead and, uh, if you could switch over to the slides. It's absolutely fascinating to me. Check out what their names are in Hebrew. Adam, Seth, and so forth. And look what their names mean. Adam means man, Seth means appointed, Enosh means mortal, Canaan means sorrow, Mahalalel means the blessed God, Jared means shall come down, Enosh means teaching, Methuselah means his death shall bring, Lamech the despairing, Noah means rest and comfort. Next slide. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest or comfort. You tell me how they name their babies over that many years to figure that thing out, that they're talking about the gospel. There's fingerprints all over it. So, real quickly, are genealogies boring? They kind of are. <laughs> Unless you dig for silver and gold and you start going into the Word of God and going, every single thing in this book you throw Jesus in the middle, like Byron says all the time. You throw Jesus in the middle, and all of a sudden it starts to make sense. It's fascinating to me. Now, if that just doesn't blow your mind, do you think God has a reason for everything He says in Scripture? Even genealogies? Well, it gets better. Okay, ready? Turn uh, Genesis 5, right? We're there. Enoch is the seventh from Adam. Go, let's go back one slide just for a second. Terry, let's go back one slide just for a second. Um, so Enoch is the seventh from Adam. And we know seven's a lot of fun in the Bible, don't we? So I don't know, there's always something interesting about seven. But he's the seventh of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 5, in, in that genealogy, which includes these first ten names here that we see in Luke, in verse 21 through 23 of Genesis chapter 5, it says of Enoch. Now this is, it's not up there, you got to read here. Well actually it might be, yeah, flip two, two slides forward. No, back. Sorry, everybody. No, it's not there. So just read in your Bibles, verse 21 through 24. It says, Enoch lived 65 years and begot, that means he had, Methuselah. And after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Now, the previous six genealogies, when it's going through Adam and it's going through everything, there's a, there's, a, there's a repetition in Scripture. All these guys, it says, they were born, they had kids, they died. They were born, they had kids, they died. Let that be a lesson to you. No, I'm just kidding. 
But I'm just kidding. <laughs> but all of a sudden, you get to the seventh guy and the repetition changes. The repetition changes. Pretty fascinating, isn't it? It changes. Instead of you're born, you're kids, you, you die. It says Enoch was born, he had kids, a specific kid. He walked with God and was not, for God took him. One thing is obvious, is if you walk with God, you don't die. Very interesting. This is obviously foreshadowing the fact that when we have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, the gospel says, what, in John 3.16, what? For God so loved the world that whoever believes upon him shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. In other words, we don't experience the second death. We don't experience eternal separation from God, but we have eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's so cool. Here it's always foreshadowed in a genealogy in Genesis. Isn't that weird? It's amazing. I love that. And that's one point we can marvel at. But one more that's subtle, but there. It would seem that something about Enoch's son Methuselah might have woken Enoch up to walk faithfully with God. If you notice, he he lived for 65 years, it says, right? And then he walked with God faithfully, right? When he had his kid. What in the world happened? Now we can say, you know, kids change their lives and we kind of wake up, maybe. You know, that's pretty interesting. But it says that he walked with God faithfully for 300 years after he had Methuselah. The first 65 were the same as everybody else. What happened? I have a guess, and I think... It has everything to do with Methuselah. I strongly think God, and this is my, my personal opinion, okay? I want to put that out there. I strongly think that God must have spoken to Enoch through the birth of Methuselah, and it changed his life. Check it out. Here's Methuselah's account, verse 25 of Genesis chapter 5. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, so Enoch's kid, when Methuselah lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. And after he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived a total of 969 years, and then he died. I'm not going to talk about the age of why people live long and all that stuff. That's a Genesis study. I'm focusing on something else this morning. But if you want to talk to me about it afterward, that's cool. But so the repetition goes back to normal. You see that? Enoch walked with God and lived, but then after that, it just goes back to normal. His son but something interesting about Methuselah, let's go to the next slide, next set of slides. Keep going, bud. Next, next one, next one. Yep. It's really interesting. Methuselah is what? He's the olding, oldest living person recorded in the Scripture. 969 years. What's the significance of that? I always ask weird questions like that when I study the Bible. Why is that there? You know, Methuselah, next slide, Methuselah had Lamech at 187 years old, right? Something very interesting about the name uh, Methuselah is that his name comes from two Hebrew words. Methuselah comes from muth, which means death, and shellac, like shellac, and it's going to bring it. The name means his death shall bring. His death shall bring. 
Very interesting. So Methuselah had... Let's go to the next slide. <clears throat> Are you skipping slides on me? Ah, let's go back a couple of slides. I'm sorry. The one where it says... Under, Methuselah lived, had Lamech at 187. Lamech had Noah at 182. And it says the flood came when Noah was 600. How many of you math majors are out there? So from the time Methuselah was born, was 900, and by the time Noah was 600 years old, it was, that's when he died. So basically, Methuselah died when Noah was 600, if you do all the numbers and the math. What happened when Noah was 600? The flood came on that day. And so I'm wondering why Enoch got all straightened out. Because when he had a son, I think the Lord was saying, hey, when this kid goes, judgment comes. Judgment comes. Now let me ask you, why is the oldest living man, living man Methuselah? Why? It's almost there. If God's judgment is going to come when that guy dies, why didn't he die when he was 50? Why is he the oldest living man in Scripture? Was it tell you about the nature of God? Was it tell you about who God is? God is just, but he desires mercy. Amen? I love that. The reason Methuselah lived the longest was because the day that he died, the flood of judgment would come. Let that sink in. Think about your life. Think about the people you love. Why they continue to go on and go on and go on. You know, 2 Peter 3.9. Flip over to 2 Peter if you can. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. And we're going to read verses 3 through 9 in just a minute. But it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, with me, not wanting anyone to what? Perish, but everyone to come to what? Repentance. I love that about the Lord. I want to focus here just for a second. Second, uh, second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 9. I'm going to read them with you. Follow along in the Scriptures. Underline what you need to know. He says, Above all, Starting in verse 3 of 2 Peter chapter 3. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own evil desires, they will say, where's the coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it had since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water by water. Verse six, but these waters also by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. They forget. Verse seven, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for what? Fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord is a day. Excuse me, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. 
Instead, he is what? Patient. He's patient with you. Aren't you so glad God is patient with you? Aren't you so glad he's been patient with you? Patient with me? How many of you need a little more people patient with you? How many of you need to be a little bit more patient towards other people? Everybody else says, amen. You know? <laughs> glad God does not execute me right away. I'm glad God is long-suffering. Glad God is not in a hurry to put his judgment upon people. But he says, don't judge who God is by what is going on in the world. That he is somehow unjust. Believe me, you don't want God to be just. If he's going to be just, it's going to be pretty scary. You get revelation going on, right? What do you want from God? I want his mercy. I want him to be merciful. I want to be merciful upon the family members that I know that don't know the Lord. I want people who don't know Jesus and who are walking in total sin, and they look at me and they get mad at me because I'm pointing out they've got a symptom of a disease. You know, my heart is that just like me, a wretched sinner, Jesus would be so, his love would come through, but also there is a day. We don't need to veer away from the fact that there is judgment because God is just. We've got to bring the message just like John did. There is a day coming when your heart stops beating, when the just, you'll face the Lord and give an account for what we've done in our body. And if you do not have the Son, if you do not have forgiveness, you are under condemnation. But if you have the Son, you have forgiveness, you have life. Amen? And we are that light of the world. We need to proclaim that light to the world with a desperate heartbeat. Amen? But he says that same world, the same heaven, it's reserved for fire. But the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I love that. And so even the names of these men, they speak of God's desire to save mankind from sin and the coming wrath. I know it's not a popular message, you know? But that's the way he puts it in the book. And... I think it's so sweet and so beautiful that that in the cross of Christ, both the wrath of God, you know, the justice of God, and the love of God was satisfied. Don't you love that? One hand stretched to God, one hand stretched to man, that the, the justice of God and the love of God was satisfied in Christ. So we sang at the cross, at the cross, I surrender my life, you know. We sang, uh, you know, that one voice with the cross ahead and the world behind. We're Christians. We've been saved. And it should be reflected so deeply in our love for one another, which is our witness, and also our heart towards the world, that we'd be willing to lay down our lives that they might live. Amen? The scriptures are amazingly powerful and beautiful. And I know it was a botched presentation and all that great stuff. I don't care. You know, if that's not what I, you know, that's not what I'm known for. <laughs> Who cares? Have you, have you, when you open the scriptures and you start reading and you start seeing these genealogies and you see things that are boring, stop and say, Lord, where, Jesus, where are you here? Will you show me your son in this? And read it again. And start asking someone, what does this mean? Where's Jesus in this? You know, I have, I'm a pastor. I could tell you 50 things that I go, what in the world is that? I'm reading the Bible. I'm reading Genesis. And all of a sudden, it's telling the story. And it's going along great. And then all of a sudden, there's this guy who 
you know, goes and his niece becomes, kind of prostitutes herself to him. You're just going, what in the world, Lord? What are you putting that in there for? And it's Judah and Tamar. And you're going, what's with this weird story? Why is that in there? That's kind of gross and stuff. Well, you find out when you get to the genealogy in Matthew that their kid was, Judah had a kid. Who's Jesus part of the tribe of? The lion of the tribe of Judah. That's his great, 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 great. You know, you get to other situations. Ruth and Boaz, you get to situations that of, of the harlot. Why, is, why does it talk about the harlot on top of the roof who hid the spies? Why does it identify her by name when they were coming to Jericho? Remember, she hit him? Well, she eventually married one of those guys and had a child. She is Jesus' great, 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 great grandma, right? The Bible is amazing. It is just absolutely amazing. So I'm asking that you would, you would spend time in the scriptures, not just, we live in an age where we just, just give me the low-hanging fruit. Just give me the low-hanging fruit. I want the bottom line, and if it's not instantly like, and I'm like off to something more entertaining. You want depth in your life, you got to dig. He'll give it to you. He'll give it to you to where you, you can't exhaust it. He'll tie you in a knot. And then re- undo that knot, and you'll be blown away. It'll give you another. It'll make you deep people of the word. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. He'll do it. So when we come to things like this, you know, I'm like, okay, great. We spent all this time on a genealogy. The point is Jesus is in there. You didn't see it, did you? I didn't see it. But the Lord in His grace, He opened our eyes to see Jesus in all these names, right? Not only I don't do stuff like that, but He's fascinating. And the pictures and the types and the stories and the poems, whoever you are, you a legalistic type of guy, you like law type of work, He's got words for you. How many of you are floaty doties poetry type people? Musicians, weirdos. He's got stuff for you. He can speak to you in your heart. How many of you like apocalyptic type stuff or just stories? It's all there for you. It says, come. Come feed. I'm going to give, lead you to green pastures. I'm going to restore your soul. I'm going to bring you still waters. Come. He loves you. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for Jesus being on every page of this the scriptures you've given us, that you are like, um, Lord, you're on the on the surface where everybody can see, and you're so gentle and gracious to give us the, just the just the visual truths that we can see just right off the top, and how we all need that. And yet, as deep as anybody wants to go, they could spend their whole life on one verse and never fathom your depth. Because you are that deep. You are like, unlike anything else, you are the Word of God. And our hearts long for you. We don't even know it. But our hearts and our minds, they can't be filled with the things of this world. It's not big enough. It's not exciting enough. You are eternal. You're outside. You're bigger than anything. You're more exciting than anything. You're deeper than anything. You have more knowledge than anything. And, and it's all the wisdom that we need is in Christ Jesus. And Lord, let us mine you. Let us come to you and spend time with you and feed upon you, Lord Jesus. 
just for the simple things, for the deep, profound things, Lord. Let's just be amazed in you this week. And I pray that that study would, in that time of focusing on you and digging in your word and seeking out those nuggets, wouldn't turn into a pharisaical type of mindset where we've got a bunch of knowledge and no love. But it would turn around so we would just go, do you know how vast his mercy is, how deep his love? Do you know that, and, and we could say things like, you are so merciful, Lord, because we know that in a real picture here that you would make the longest living man be a picture of that. How long you stretch and wait for your judgment. How slow to anger you are. So, Lord, let us represent you properly to the world. We love you. Thank you for this morning. We give it all to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.